Hi, Rob Shank here. You're listening to Shank Talks Bunhofer, a podcast all about the life, times, ideas, and legacy of this brave, morally courageous church leader in the time of Adolf Hitler and Nazism in Germany. You know the story how he worked so hard to preserve the moral and spiritual integrity of the church in Germany and to resist the brutal, violent, hateful regime of the Third Reich and how he would ultimately give his life for his convictions when he was hanged at Flossenburg concentration camp in April of 1945. This series of episodes is a little different. It's a conversation that I had with another remarkable religious leader in our own time, Rabbi Shoal Praver of Fairfield, Connecticut. He was one of the first spiritual caregivers to arrive on the scene at one of the most unspeakable moments of violence in the history of the United States, maybe in the world. And that was the day when a much too young, mentally ill, deranged, very violent and heavily armed man entered the otherwise peaceful, joyful, wondrously curious environment of an elementary school in Sandy Hook, Connecticut and brutally took the lives of 20 small children and six adults only after he had killed his own mother in their home. I think you'll find this conversation profoundly moving, deeply insightful, and even hopeful in the wake of such an unspeakable tragedy. This event that took place in that little village can never be forgotten, never minimized, never excused, never rationalized, never dismissed, and most certainly never repeated. So I hope you'll take the time to listen to the entirety of these conversations in a series I call The Story Behind the Rabbi at Sandy Hook. Thanks for listening. I'm in the home of Rabbi Shoal Praver. And uh, sometimes I like to think of you as my rabbi. I have a couple of rabbis in my life. And I rely on them. But I thank you first for your warm reception here. We're in Fairfield. Connecticut, not far from Newtown. That's very, very, very special to hear that. Well, we met uh, initially in the aftermath of what too many people must associate now with Newtown, Sandy Mm -hmm. Hook. Yes. And the Sandy Hook Elementary School. But before we get to that episode, you have a whole life before that Mm -hmm. and a career of 
if if I can call it that, although, uh, you know, in, in, in Christian circles, we, we often refer to being a spiritual caregiver as more of a calling than a yeah. career, but it's both. Yeah. But you're not born a rabbi. No. Do you mind telling us about the personal journey that, that oh, sure. brought sure. you to the rabbinate? Well, you know my father. I do. Bob. And uh, he's... Uh, not a believer in God of any form. And that was always a um, concern of mine as a child uh, because I felt a natural affinity, a natural belief that there must be an omnipresent creator of all things. And uh, But he, he has his beliefs. My mother did believe she had some of the traditions, spoke Yiddish in the house with my grandmother, Sarah. With the exception of the Yiddish, I did find myself drawing a parallel here because you're describing Dietrich Bonhoeffer's family life Wow. with a father who did not believe, huh. with a mother who had some belief. Wow. And this is Shank Talks Bonhoeffer. It's all about Bonhoeffer. All of a sudden, Okay, you're another Bonhoeffer. Uh, <laughs> well, that, I mean, he's what an incredible man to have stood up against Hitler at, at age 27. Indeed. And um, at that time, it was not easy to uh, be the, uh, the moral voice. We have a four-footed guest who just joined us in case you hear somebody licking their chops. It's not me. <laughs> That's Philly. That's Philly, and Philly has a story. <laughs> yeah, Philly was given to me. He was one of the uh, comfort dogs at uh, Sandy Hook mm. in Newtown. Mm. The dogs really won the day. You know, um, They brought a lot of comfort to people that wanted to get past language, didn't want to talk about it, just wanted to sort of cuddle up with a empathetic, um, warm, furry creature that didn't ask them questions. Yes. Um, mm. Which was opened up a whole window into uh, counseling for me when I saw that the traditional modes, for the most part, were not effective. And yet big names from all over the country came in. And it was very nice of them to offer their services. But I can't deny that um, the most comfort that people had was through the nonverbal, the, the dogs, just to be um, quiet, calm, and uh, doing things to help other people. That's when the therapeutic talk came out mm -hmm. writing thank you notes for all of the teddy bears and all of the you know really kind things yes that people all over the country had done well philly interrupted uh the journey yeah yeah your life's journey so um yeah so it began there and uh my faith was solidified in, in 1969 i was um, a, an avid Mets fan. I always got the news, Newsday paper and knew all the stats. Just as a reference point, that is 50 years ago now, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> and um, 
I loved uh, the Mets, and I wanted them to win the World Series, but they were in last place. And I uh, made a fervent prayer. And people think I'm joking when I say this, but I'm not. <laughs> that God should do miracles for the Mets in 1969. And uh, I made that prayer in a very real way. If you are really God and can do miracles, show us what you could do. Mm. This nine-year-old praying. And that was the year of the Miracle Mets. And that's all I needed. And to this day, I know, you know, Cleon Jones played left field, Tommy Agee was in center field, Ron Sabota in right field, and so on and so forth. That's, God showed up in 1969, and uh, I knew that it was real. And God has continued to show up in the valleys and in the peaks of, of my life. There's another Bonhoefferianism in there because his nexus with reality, mm. with where we really live and the things we really experience, he was so big on, on staying centered on reality and not taking the flight of fancy to the imaginary mm. worlds. Mm. Uh, and just, just the story of of the Mets. I mean, this is where we really live. These are the things that really concern us at certain moments of our lives. And and yeah. uh, I don't think you were kidding there that this... No, I, I meant I was nine years old and I... Yes, I, that's where a nine-year-old meets the reality of an answered prayer. That was my prayer. <laughs> it was answered. And who could have anticipated that they'd be called the Miracle Mets? Yes. And history will show that there are things that happened on that field in that year. And it's like field of dreams. Um, that, um, I don't know, I, I, I'm not a scholar of, of baseball, but I, I think you will find that uh, there were some catches and Ron Sabota in right field, <laughs> Tommy Agee, the blooper in left field. Yes. <laughs> throwing the guy out, you know, and home played after that. Um, that I, I've, uh, I've never heard a rabbi hold forth on, on that game. Yeah, as <laughs> you are now. Yeah, no. Uh, that's... But if this was uh, uh, an awakening of faith in mm -hmm. you, did it continue uninterrupted from that point on? It continued um, mostly through uh, a conversation, uh, an ongoing, <clears throat> ongoing conversation uh, that I was having with my grandmother from um, Vilna. She came. The typical oh. uh, story: thirteen years old, mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, Lower East Side. Uh, my grandmother, uh, Sarah Marshall, um, came from Vilna. This is my maternal grandmother. And she didn't go to school, you know, at age 13. Um, mm -hmm. She was a seamstress. They were poor, you know, they made it through. And eventually, uh, you know, their children, her children, um, my mother, uh, moved to a town like Great Neck, you know, and we were... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, we had that oh, also in I common. forgot about... Yeah, this thing we have in common. And we lived on Skank Avenue. Yeah, isn't that amazing? <laughs> and back then, our family pronounced it Skank. Right. Uh, and uh, then we're not sure which generation turned it to Shank. Yeah. But we're talking about Great Neck, New York, Long Island. Yeah. Where my father 
spent most of his formative years, mm -hmm. where my namesake, Captain Robert L. Shank, died uh, in Korea and, and uh, while the family was living in Great Neck. Um, and so there's a lot tied there, including a memorial plaque for my namesake, my uncle, wow. at Temple Bethel. Wow. In the old sanctuary. Yeah. Which you have a personal connection to. Sure. All the, um, well, we were Temple, my grandmother was Temple Israel. That, oh, okay. She went. Uh -huh. So that was uh, like conservative. Yes. Bethel was the reform. It's kind of across the street? Yeah. Or just up the street? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Bethel was sort of yes. at the bottom of that street. Yep. And then Temple Israel, the conservative, and then um, Great Neck Synagogue was the Orthodox. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Right. Before the Iranian you know, uh, influx, you know, oh, that, that I don't know, know anything about that came later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, um, but those, those, that was it for the, the Jewish scene, mm -hmm. um, in those, in those days. Um, mm. you know, it's interesting because Mr. Marshall, um, my mother's father was also in the uh, Korean, uh, uh, incident or, or conflict. And, um, he was uh, part of the Lost Platoon. Really? Yeah, he was a medic. He was kind of a hero. He. Uh, oh my. Yeah. So they might have known each other. We could look into that. Yes. Do you know what years he was there? It's in a in a book. Um, I don't know offhand. Bobby but, uh, Skank, Captain Skank, was there uh, fifty to fifty two. Mm-hmm. My, my older brother has it all documented. Yeah, we'll check that out. Yeah, yeah. But where does that leave us? So uh, now we're talking about Great Neck and... Uh, so, okay, so um, so that went on. So we sort of had these like Socratic conversations, my grandmother and I, hmm. what was life, you know, like in the old country, and, you know, and, um, and she, in her own way, you know, said, do you think you'll go to Israel? Maybe you'll like hmm. to learn more. You know, she planted seeds yeah. and uh eventually i did i did go to israel and uh what I, year 81 yeah. so i had graduated high school didn't really have the um, hebrew education because my father didn't really support that um, and he was stronger in his view than my mother um and that was okay um and i was into a general spirituality and Native Americans, actually. I got very, very involved with Interesting. Native American culture and learned a lot about it. Um, and at 21, I went to uh, Israel. College wasn't, I wasn't really so uh, lit up hmm. about uh, my first couple of years in college. I, I went, but it wasn't uh, really turning me on. And, and when I went to Israel, I really came to life. And uh, that Where was did you just live? great. Jerusalem. In Jerusalem? Yeah. I, I stayed... Uh, until 1989, mm. became a rabbi there, uh, the Jerusalem rabbinate. So I went to the, you know, the real Orthodox and Black Hat. I see. Talmud and in the yes. Aramaic original sources. Yes. Um, and uh, so you were there during the years I was most frequently uh, to Israel. Oh, it was in okay. the 80s. In the 80s, yeah. And then I was involved in a in a uh, hospital project in southern Lebanon, so I would go up to the north 
and cross over with the help of the Israeli Defense Forces sure. that would get me into Lebanon safely to work mm -hmm. out of St. George's Hospital in Marjayoun, uh, Lebanon. Oh. That was 80, oh boy, I'm losing track of time now, but in the mid-80s. You were doing chaplaincy? Yes. Wow. Exactly, and we, we placed a family there, a medical team, and he was the principal physician uh, working out of that hospital. Uh, but uh, now I get onto my own story, and this is your no, I, story. You're living in Israel, and yeah. is this when you decide that the rabbinate is your future? Oh, I went to Israel to become a rabbi. Oh, okay, so yeah. you're in rabbinical school. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Okay. I, I went straight for it. I missed that. Somehow. Yeah. No. No. I didn't. I didn't say it. Mm -hmm. um, at, at that point in time, I was going there with a, you know I had a real reason, and uh, mm -hmm. I was into a spiritual life. I knew I'd be some kind of a spiritual leader. You know, I had a ponytail down my back. I thought I'd go to Israel for, you know, I play violin. I'm a musician. Right. I thought I'd go, you know, to Israel for six months and then you know go to the um, India you know, where the spirituality is really happening, I thought. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then when I got to Israel, I saw, wow, this place is exotic. This, you know, but, people... but India would have been, what, an ashram or something? Yeah, it would have gone in that direction. Yeah, right. But then I found... Um, I only learned when I visited the, the home, the residence of the Indian ambassador to the United States for, of all things, a Hanukkah party. Really? And they told the story of the Jewish community in India, mm -hmm. which they claim is very, very old. Oh, yeah. And predates yeah. Hanukkah. Better, uh, better Israel community. Uh, I don't know anything more than, you know, what was talked about there. Uh, but uh, that would have been an interesting. But you never made it to India. Never went. Because I, everything I wanted and the sense of belonging really hit me strong. Hmm. Being the majority, you know, no offense to the minority, but we, I've always been a, a um, minority. Yes. And suddenly you're the majority. And there's a sense of like, you're in, you belong, welcome, you know, come and make history with us. Yes. So it was a powerful, uh, very transformative experience. Those were really good years. And besides the war, the Lebanese war that you mentioned. Yes. But, um, but they were certainly, even even with the Lebanese um, war, which was not, well, it, it wasn't hot and intense always. After a while, troops were just there. Um, but it was a much more, you know, on balance, peaceful time yeah. than later years. Yeah. It was still a little bit of that innocence. Right. It was after um, the peace. Uh, what, what was, that's when I was there. I was there the okay, year right. that the peace was made. Yes. Egypt, and, and Sadat was uh, assassinated. Oh, my. Remember right. the day? I was in Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. Uh, but that has um, held. Um, and uh, that's what, you know, what, mm. what we really need. We need um, to make peace. Uh, Amen. Were you ordained in Israel? Yeah, I, I was... Um, ordained through the, the Rabbanut of Jerusalem, of Yerushalayim, um, through a, a program that was offered in Asia Torah. So um, 
I would have stayed even longer. My, my father, I was lucky my father was supporting me. I didn't need a lot, mm-hmm. but he was putting me through. So your non-believing father is supporting your yeah. formation as a rabbi, spiritual he Yes, uh, he, he, he's supportive leader. of that. You know, he's a humanist, so he respects my humanity. Um, and he, I guess, as a uh, young man, it was uh, stabilizing and, and gave focus and purpose um, and a direction from, I'm looking at now through his lens. Yes. Rather than just kind of like, uh, let me find a guru in India. Mm-hmm. Right. You know. So this was this was progress, which, which can be so shaky. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it works for some people, and for some people, it, it's it's fine. It's just where I was at. I read the autobiography of a yogi. Yeah, I see. You know, right, and uh, that's mm-hmm. what I knew, and that's yep. what um, I was exposed to. But there was a whole thing in in Judaism and Jews from all over the world. Hmm. You know, it was it was a lot. It was not like the Jews in Great Neck. Mm, right, right. There is another thread here. Again, folks, sorry to bore you with all things Bonhoeffer, but uh, of course, no, I'm, Bonhoeffer I'm had plans to go to India. Wow. And uh, he wanted to study nonviolent resistance hmm. under Gandhi. Wow. He corresponded with Gandhi. Hmm. And Gandhi extended the invitation, but. Bonhoeffer never made it. He was arrested. That thwarted all of his plans. He was imprisoned. Yeah. And he would never have get that opportunity. Mm. Uh, wow. Interesting, it was his grandmother who tried to dissuade him. We need you in Germany. We don't need you in India. <laughs> wow. So he, he delayed it, and he delayed it too long. Uh, never made it to India, but really wanted to get there. So, uh, now, could I ask you, like... Um, um, obviously, I don't know as much about Bonhoeffer as you do. I know a little bit. Um, I know that uh, he's a very, very important philosopher, you know, um, and that he stood up against Hitler at a time where that was unheard of. Right. Um, uh, but, you know, there are a lot of different philosophers, um, and yet um, you have really zeroed in on, on, on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yeah. Uh, why, uh, what is it that, that you find so uh, compelling and so valuable that speaks to you about him? Certainly his moral courage. Yeah. Uh, as you indicate, very few people, uh, just in general, but even fewer religious figures stood up and challenged uh, Hitler, Hitlerism, and uh, Nazism. Yeah. yeah. And, and he did it, I have to say, he did it with panache. I mean, he, even with deference. Mm. And, and that impressed me that he was mm. able to do that. Uh, mm. Of course, in the end, you know, he would join a conspiracy to assassinate the head of state. Yes. Um, and even in that, the way he, the way he struggled with that decision, and in the end concluded that he could be wrong morally, hmm. Hmm. and even in his Christian belief system, put his own salvation at risk, hmm. his, the, his eternal welfare. 
And yet the other option of doing nothing while millions uh, were being murdered, uh, neither could he neither could he refrain from taking action only to assuage his own anxieties about his moral or spiritual condition. So all of that impressed me with the way he came to these decisions. And it was selfless in a sense, right? Very much so. Like even his belief that he could lose his paradise. Yes. By assassinating Hitler. Exactly. Yet he did it for, he was willing to do it for the people yes his his point was really um, you know none of that excuses one from taking what actions one c could uh, it wasn't good enough to say but what if that wasn't good enough that did not relieve him of responsibility so that, it was yeah. that that's that's what's drawn me over and over again uh wow. to him so now you are a rabbi you come back to the united states yes uh, yeah, why great. did you come back to the u.s um really the the real answer is that uh my father was a builder and in 88 he lost a lot of money oh and he, he, i couldn't um continue he couldn't continue to support me as a student in Israel um, and um, so I had I negotiated I said okay so let me do my um, ordination and I'll get my um, you know complete my cantorial studies and some other stuff that I was doing can you explain that just a little bit for our uninitiated oh, listeners yeah so, so I was in a traditional yeshiva, and, and after you have like, you know, a basic footing in Talmudic study in um, several different areas, civil law, family law, um, and you have a handle on holidays and the Sabbath, the laws and customs, um, then you can um, uh, join a smicha program, which is a, uh, ordin basically ordination. It's a it's an odd kind of a program. It, it's uh, basically the most intricate laws of um, foods, kosher foods, how to salt your meat, how to um, you know separate uh, kosher from non-kosher foods, and uh, the mixture of mil milk and meat, and the laws that pertain to it. And so it's very very um, complicated. It's not really practical because usually there's big kosher outfits that, you know, give their stamp and you're not really, it's not back in the shtetl, you know, where you have to, you know, look at the chicken and say, you know, it's kosher or not. Right. But you understand the principle. The principle. And I think behind that it. The, the idea is that if you could handle that, that those really intricate laws, then you could handle anything. Hmm. That's, I think, the working, you know, ethos of it. Um, and so I went through that um, in Asia Torah. So there, there you're going from the Talmudic to the um, halachic volumes, the Shulchan Oruch, which is the set law, which has the opinion of the Ashkenazic and the Sephardic, Ashkenazic being the Western European Jews, and the Sephardic being Jews from mostly Arab countries. Um, and um, there are some differences. So both um, traditions are recorded in the Shulchan Oruch, the set book of law. 
and then you know it just filters down again to um, other layers until it distills into uh, the way that Judaism is effectively practiced. I'm going to guess uh, most of our podcast family would be of Christian background, Gentile, uh, yes, for sure. Um, so there's a way I think that that Christians understand ordination. Yes. And there are probably similarities, but also distinct differences with the way Jews understand ordination. Mm -hmm. At what point does someone say, you are now ready to be ordained a rabbi? Okay, so you have to pass all the tests. You know, you go Literal through, exams. Yeah, written, written exams. So we go through different um, sections. Um, so you have to pass all that. And then once uh, you've done that, you're given a, 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 um, a final test where you are given situations that were not exactly like the ones that you passed on the test. Some kind of oddball situation, which you won't necessarily be wrong or right because there are those that are lenient and those that are not lenient. You would you know, fall into either one of the camps probably or somewhere in between. But you'd have, you have to rationalize and say, why have you um, come up with that decision? Who, what are you drawing from? Which commentators? You know, not just that you feel it. So, so if you've done... You need an authority Yeah, because kind. they're expecting you to be able to now um, think. Yes. That's what I liked about yeshiva. It was <laughs> about thinking, <laughs> not regurgitating. That's why I came alive. I, after 12 years of regurgitating and, and then asked to do the same thing in my first two years of college, that that just wasn't happening for me. Yeshiva, I came alive. Now we had to think stuff through. What would, you know, Rashi say in a case that uh, is somewhat different? Would he still stick to his? At what point would he change? And so then you get into you know analytical reasoning, and um, that's just where I take off and light up. I love that stuff. I think, frankly, we have a lot of illustrations of that in the Gospels. Mm -hmm. In Jesus' discourse uh -huh. with certain individuals, there seems to be that dynamic he was going on. He uh, was very Jewish. <laughs> when I read the New Testament, yeah. I, in a certain way, that's why I like to teach Bible to Christians, mm. because in a certain way I get Jesus more than the Christians, because uh, I, I get the cultural thing, and, you know, when, when, when he's talking to, you know, some of the Pharisees, I could see him rolling his eyes, you know, like, oh, yeah. That again, the, you know, the Kanyakish Jews, you know, like, you know, <laughs> trying to, you know, ask if salt is kosher or something, you know, you know, he's dealing with an element in the society which is still here, <laughs> you know, and it, it bumps against, you know, the, the, the ruach or the spirit of the law, um, you know, versus the letter of the law and how the letter and the jurisprudence, you know, creates the infrastructure to keep a people a people. You know, and it's very stark and, and startling, some of the, the laws, like Bishul Akum, not, not eating the food of a Gentile, you know, okay. that's very, it seems um, controversial, you know, today, you know, hey, it's terrible, yes. you know, such a um, racy thing to say, you know. Okay. Um, yet the um, rabbis, you know, unapologetically say that, you know, hey, you know, stuff breaks down when you share meals, when you drink with people, when you, you know, and um, they wanted to uh, hold the people 
in a uh, certain framework, you know, so that we wouldn't die out, you know, like the Canaanites and the Hittites and, and the Jebusites and all the sites except for the Israelites, you know, mm. they're still here. And many will say that's because of our, you know, jurisprudence, uh, the law, the Mosaic law. And then there's that other part that wants to break out and say, you know, but it's about the Shekhinah, it's about the, you know, the Divine Presence, it's about um, love and compassion and these other qualities. Because what does it mean if we're just still here, but we don't have the Spirit? Mm. And so there's always this kind of natural um, tug, tug of war. Um, I think in all faiths, as Christianity distilled, you also have, you know, in evangelical, probably more in, in the um, charismatic, experiential. Yes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes to a fault. I mean, there is a balance. Right. And sometimes that balance is lost in passionate spirituality. And I've seen it. I mean, I've spent my ministry career and calling in evangelical and yeah. specifically charismatic settings and yeah. i've seen that error i've seen how it goes wrong too much on emotion not enough on uh, the rational side of yes. faith which it, it is there god gave us our our uh, all of our faculties rational faith and mm -hmm. rational yeah. faculties um and I'm, i won't ask you this i won't put you on the spot but it does make me think of the question that was posed to Jesus. No, you can ask any question. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm good. You know, uh, of all the commandments, yeah, referring to Torah, uh, which are the greatest, and he said they are two. Yeah. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart. You're big on love. In right. fact, I'll let the cat out of the bag. Uh, Rabbi Praver has a book coming out on that subject, and we're going to talk about it in a different, in a subsequent podcast. Yes. But he said, they are too, and he quoted Torah. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's right. And the second is like it, he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's right. Love. It's all about love. So. He's right. And, and mm -hmm. um, he was actually just um, echoing um, the words of Rabbi Akiva. Mm. I mean, he was a student of the Pharisees. Yes. Um, he broke off to the north, the Galilee, um, and, you know, embraced a charismatic Judaism, which the Love Zap is about, mm. the return of... That's, that's, that's the rabbi's book title. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, th this, the, this was the ethos uh, of, of Judaism that sometimes gets, you know, covered up with legalism. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a dynamic, I mean, you know, and at the very heart of matter, you know, there's electrons and protons and, and they have um, opposing energies and they're all necessary to make the, uh, everything go around. You know. All this gives us insight into your own soul. Um, and I think it says a lot about why you are serving as you are now as a prison chaplain. Right. That has a lot to do with love and with humanism mm -hmm. uh, and uh, 
dare I say, God, mm -hmm. uh, sure. who is uh, at work there, perhaps in ways we don't see God at work in other places. But it also positioned you for that day seven years ago. Uh, is it seven now? Well, uh, see, I, I got into prison chaplaincy as a response to the um, shooting. In oh, I had the timing wrong on that. Yeah, okay, right. I thought you were already serving in that capacity. No, no, no. no. So, so here's how I was um, pulpit, rabbi, cantor, educator, different um, jobs, different points in my career for 23 years. Um, and then um, the shooting happened on that Friday morning and I was a first responder. And then, like everyone else, you know, the, I had drama and, and, and um, this need to do something about that, you know, to heal myself, to heal others. And I, everything was very, the world looked different to me after the shooting. I couldn't really stomach a, a usual um, board meeting anymore, <laughs> you know, talking about mm. minutia de, you know, kleinikite. Mm. Um, mm. A word, a little Yiddish that, um, right. that uh, things like colors of carpets, and yeah. restrooms that need renovation, and even perhaps schedules of services and such. Yeah, I I I felt that I needed to make an impact, and that there was a change coming, hmm. and I needed to do something to reduce the violence in the community. Hmm. And uh, I will say that um, I, today I feel I, I really have accomplished that. Um, and I accomplish it every day that I go to work. And I love what I do. Um, I have, Are you in yeah. a state facility? State facilities. Mm -hmm. And these are long-term prisoners? Uh, there's two jails that are short-term. And, and then um, five state prisons that I yep. serve. Well, I really want to explore that further. We've sure. talked longer than I normally do on this podcast, so I'm going to give our folks who are, who are joining in a, a chance to relax a little bit and bring this part of our conversation to a close. It's been absolutely fascinating. I, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Rabbi Praver as much as I have. I think you can tell I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> And being here at your home, it's so comfortable that it's dangerous. I got to watch <laughs> the time a little better, but uh, but we're, we're going to do this as a first installment, with your permission, sure. And then come back to the big moment that changed so many lives, sure, including your own. Yeah. So thanks for hanging with us this long. Thank you. Yeah. Be back in the next episode. If you want to binge with us, please do. If not. You can listen when you get a chance. So uh, this is Shank Talks Unhofer with Rabbi Shoal Praven, my guest, and we'll be back for another episode with you. Okay.